You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Job. We will be studying, looking at the pages of Job chapter 1 this morning. When I was 18 years old, my family suffered a terrible tragedy. I was in my first year at McMaster University in Hamilton, uh, living uh, in my own room in Brandon Hall, and uh, I was studying for a test, at least I think I was, I may have been Uh, just having some leisure time, as is typical for students in university. I don't remember, but I do remember getting a phone call, and uh, it was my mom. And if you know my mom, you know that she is the most optimistic, energetic person you'll ever meet. But as soon as I picked up the phone and I heard her voice, I knew that something was wrong. Uh, She was quiet, and she was reserved, and she was serious, And so after we greeted one another, she told me what had happened. Some of her siblings and their uh, children and uh, my mom's parents were driving together in one minivan to Florida for a vacation when my uncle, who was driving, fell asleep at the wheel. And uh, he lost control of his vehicle and the car ended up doing a bunch of rolls and settled into the ditch. Uh, He and his family were okay. My other uncle, who was sitting in the passenger seat, suffered traumatic traumatic brain injury. And my grandparents, uh, they they died. They didn't make it. Our family had experienced loss in the past. Uh, Those were my only two surviving grandparents, uh, but not loss like this. It had never been so sudden and unexpected. My grandparents were were healthy, and they were only in their early 70s, and we often saw them. We would gather together in their home or at a restaurant, and uh, we would see each other often. There was no reason to believe that that would change, but just like that, they were gone. As we grieved together with my extended family, I remember one of my cousins asking me, why did this happen to us? We, we, We are a Christian family. We, we follow the Lord. Why would God bring this into our lives? I wonder, have you ever asked a question like that? Perhaps you've suffered some tragic, unexpected loss, or you've experienced some grave injustice, or you've been victimized by the cruelty or the abuse of another person, and you've wondered, why? Why did that happen? Where is God in all this? What happened to God's justice? Well, that is what the book of Job is all about. Derek Kidner writes, what faces us here is the urgent problem of divine justice. We know that the Bible teaches that God is just, that he does what is just, he loves what is just, he calls his people to be just. In Psalm 37, he says, the psalmist says, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. 
but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The Bible teaches that that God is good and out of his goodness flows justice, perfect justice. And not only is God good, not only does he do what is right and just, but he is sovereign, he is in control. He, he, He loves what is right and he is able to do what is right. So then, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? You may recall a story from 2020 where a pastor named John Powell, 38 years old, married, had four young children, uh, planting a church in Texas, a faithful gospel-centered church, stopped by the side of the road to help a stranded motorist, and as he helped this stranger, he was struck by a passing truck, and he died. Why did John Powell have to die at 38? And why does Hugh Hefner get to live till 91 and die in the comfort of his sprawling mansion? These are questions that raise the urgent problem of divine justice. And no book in the Bible addresses this more directly or fully than Job. And today, we begin this new sermon series on the book of Job called, When the Righteous Suffer. When the Righteous Suffer. There are many reasons why we experience suffering in this life. Often, We suffer because of the natural consequences of our own sin. Often we suffer because we made foolish decisions. We can attribute the suffering that we experience to a human cause. But sometimes we suffer despite doing nothing wrong. And in fact, we can suffer despite doing everything right. And that was Job. Job was a righteous man who suffered immeasurable loss. We're going to see some of that today and in a couple of weeks. But the majority of this book in the Bible does not actually describe his loss. All of that happens in the first two chapters of Job. The rest of the book of Job, the other 40 chapters, address how he felt, address his temptations, to curse God, address how he was struggling in his mind to understand what had happened theologically. Job has been called a neglected treasure of the Christian life. It is neglected because it is hard to understand. Uh, Most of it is written in poetry and uh, its language is very image-saturated. It can be hard to put all the pieces together. You know, when people talk about Bible reading plans, and they talk about getting stuck on Leviticus, I often get stuck on Job. 42 chapters, and it seems like it's all the same. It's it's a hard book to understand, but, but that's not the only reason why it's neglected. It is also neglected because we do not like to talk about suffering. We, we like to turn away from our suffering. We, we try to ignore our suffering because it hurts too much. But Job will help us. 
to not only look at his suffering, but our suffering, and to learn what the Bible teaches about how to persevere through it. We will spend at least 16 sermons on this book, and that will take us to uh, late August or early September. And my prayer is that we will learn how the Bible equips us for the times when the righteous suffer. The title of this sermon is The Lord Gives and the Lord Takes Away. We're going to break up chapter one into three points. First, why Job suffered. Second, what Job suffered. And third, how Job suffered. First point, the why Job suffered. The book of Job begins with a scene of perfect justice. Job is introduced in verse one as a man who lived in the land of Uz. Uh, We don't know exactly the location of this ancient city or region, but we do know that it was east of Israel. It was outside of the promised land. And that is an important detail for us to to, to understand because it tells us that Job was not part of the covenant people of God as one of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a stranger to the covenant. And yet he still knew the Lord and he sought to worship the Lord, the living God, in the best way that he knew how. You could say that he was like King Melchizedek, whom Abraham met after uh, delivering Lot from uh, Sodom in the war of those kings. And he was like Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. These are men who knew the Lord, but who were not part of Israel per se. And yet they were God-fearing men who worshiped the living God. This is, this is Job. And Job is described in verse one as blameless and upright. When the Bible uses these terms to describe someone in the Bible, it's not talking about someone who is perfect, It's not talking about someone who is sinless. It's talking about someone who lives with integrity under God's law. Someone who is is honest with who they are, with their failings, with their sins, and when they sin, they, they bring them to the Lord for forgiveness and atonement. This is a kind of man who lives in such a way that no one's gonna dig up dirt that he's hiding from the rest of the world. He is a man of integrity, No one's going to accuse him of living under his own law rather than God's law. He is a man living under submission to God. Job is also described in verse two as a man, sorry, verse one, as a man who feared God and turned away from evil. The fear of God is the main designation in the scriptures for the wise. It's it's the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because it is the proper response to the knowledge of God. If you truly know God, you will fear God, not in the sense of being terrified of him like a monster or a scary being, but but in the sense of living in reverential submission to his majesty and to his authority. It is the experienced reality of recognizing the godness of God, or as we sang earlier in this service, to, to recognize that he is the only holy God And he consumes in his wrath those who are wicked and who do not follow his rule. Job was a good man. He was a godly man. But he is also described in verse two as a great man. He had 10 children, seven sons, and three daughters. 
He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Now, we may not be able to put that in perspective because, uh, to my knowledge, none of us owns a single camel or oxen or donkey, Um, but this man had thousands of them, 11,000 animals when you total it all together. Uh, Verse 2 helps us to understand who he was. It says he was the greatest of all the people of the East. He was like the Bill Gates of his time. No one in that region of the world had more than him because God had blessed him. God prospered him and God loved him. Verse four gives us a picture of family harmony and celebration. It says his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, perhaps their birthdays. They would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. What, what a lovely picture of recreation and leisure and, and family members enjoying one another. There's no division among his children. They, they love one another. Not one is left out. And they are eating and drinking together in this harmonious, peaceful world that God has created for them. But behind all their celebrations is a more serious note in verse five. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Many of us know what it's like to to bear the burden of having a prodigal child, uh, a son or a daughter who is wayward, who is far from the Lord. And and you can relate to this where, where you pray for them incessantly. You you pray for them with passion. You pray for them without giving up. Well, Job was like that, except none of his children were prodigals. This is is preemptive intercession. He, He is praying that just in case they had sinned, just in case they had cursed God, not outwardly, but in their hearts, he was offering atoning sacrifices, not just for his favorites, not just for those who he had special concern for, but for all of them. And that is because he was a man who fears the Lord. He believes in God's mercy, but he also believes in God's justice and God's holiness. He knows that if atonement is not made for sin, God's judgment will come upon even his children. And so faithfully, every time they gather together to feast, Job would make atonement for each of them. 10 animals for 10 children. Now, at this point in chapter one, the scene shifts from earth to heaven, from the land of Uz to God's heavenly courts. Verse six says, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God was one of the names for the angels. Uh, These are angelic beings, perhaps the captains of the heavenly host, gathered together, being summoned by God for a heavenly council. But there is an unexpected participant in this council who shows up. Verse six goes out of its way to to point out that Satan also came among them. Now there's some debate among scholars about the identity of this mysterious figure. 
since the Hebrew literally means the Satan, not, not Satan as a, as a proper noun, but, but as, a, as a designation of what he did. The, the Satan literally means the adversary or the accuser. And so some scholars say this isn't Satan in terms of like, you know, the, the fallen angel who leads the, the evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places. I don't see any reason to draw that conclusion. I think there is good reason to believe that the Satan is Satan himself. And we will see that based on what Satan says to God and more importantly, what Satan does to Job. The Lord turns to Satan in verse seven and asks, from where have you come? God asks a question. And whenever God asks questions in scripture, he is not seeking knowledge that he does not currently have. He questions, he asks questions, just like he asked Adam in the garden, where are you? He asks questions to draw out the heart of the one who is being questioned. And the, the heart of Satan is revealed as a heart of contempt for God. He replies, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. In other words, God, you don't need to know where I've been. I was, I was here, there, everywhere. It really is none of your business. The Lord asks a second question in verse eight. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Here we see exactly what we saw in verse one, where the, the narrator, the writer of Job tells us what God tells Satan. Job is blameless and upright. Job fears God, Job turns away from evil. God is agreeing that Job is a good and godly man. There is no discrepancy here between the narrator and God. Job is blameless, upright, fears God, turns away from evil. And what God is doing as he says, have you considered? He's saying, Satan, look at my servant. Look at this man who loves me, who follows me, who worships me, who lives in the fear of God. Have you considered him? Do you see him? He even says, there is none like him on the earth. Verse one, it said, there was no one greater than him in all the east because of what he had. But God looks at who he was, not just at what he had, but who he was. And he says, there is none like him in all the earth. This truly was God's faithful servant. Now, Satan responds in verses nine to 11, he says, have you, does Job, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now, do you hear the subtle suggestion the implication of what Satan is saying. He is saying uh, the only reason why Job serves God, why Job lives a blameless and upright life, why Job fears God and turns away from evil is because of what it gets him. Satan is saying, of course he serves you. Look at what you've given him. He loves the giver because he loves the gifts. But if you take away the gifts, oh, he'll be exposed for what he truly is. He will hate you 
and he will curse you to your face and, and, and he will prove that no one truly loves you for your own sake, but only for what you provide. Satan is not only questioning Job's integrity, he is questioning God's sufficiency. He's saying to God, he doesn't want you for your own sake. He wants your stuff. He wants your blessings. He wants your divine protection. You take it away and he will be exposed as a hypocrite. And so the Lord replies, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan could not do a single thing against Job or against his possessions without God releasing him to do it. This is one of the starkest illustrations of the absolute sovereignty of God. God doesn't do evil, but he does ordain it because nothing happens except through him and by his will. And so all of this is happening within his sovereign providence. And here in these verses is where we begin to understand why Job suffered. He suffered not only so that Job would be vindicated, that is proven right in his integrity, but God would be vindicated in his sufficiency. God is lifting the hedge of protection in order to make a point that God is enough and that there is at least one man in the earth who loves God for his own sake and not for what he provides. Derek Kidner writes, if Satan could prove God's finest man a hypocrite, no one's sincerity will still be credible. But if he fails in this test case with every weapon granted him, he will have shown, despite himself, that such a thing as pure, disinterested godliness indeed exists beyond all doubt and all concealing. We must remember what chapter one tells us about the character and integrity of Job. Because we may be tempted now or further on in the book to believe that Job suffered because he didn't do something that was right. He did something wrong. But rather than suffering because he did something wrong, he suffered because he did everything right. His suffering wasn't the result of God's wrath. It was the result of God's delight. This was God's finest man. Not just in the east, but in all the earth. A man who obeyed God, who feared God, who repented of his sins against God. But rather than shield him from suffering, it was the very reason God subjected him to suffering. God doesn't test people because he wonders if they will pass. He tests them because he knows that they will. And when Job passed this test, God himself would prove that he in himself, apart from his blessings, apart from his gifts, he himself is our highest good, the one who is sufficient to satisfy our souls. 
so that generations of people who came after Job, our generation, would believe that even if we lost everything, even if suffering hit us as we pursued walking with Jesus and living in reverential submission to God, even if we lost everything, God would be enough. God would be sufficient for us. That is the book of Job's initial answer to the question of why he suffered. But it doesn't answer all our questions, does it? It doesn't answer the question of, is this fair? I mean, none of this changes the fact that Job lost everything. None of this changes the fact that his 10 godly, beautiful children were crushed under the, the falling walls of the oldest brother's house. None of that changes any of that. Is this fair? Is it right for God to do that? Do we, as people who fear God, do we need to be afraid that God will, will someday do this to us? And what do we do with the pain? How, how do we grieve with hope? How do we continue to trust God and to follow him when we suffer loss like this? We will address these questions in time. It will take 42 chapters to just begin to open up the answers to those questions. But for now, we must turn our attention to what Job suffered. Verses 13 to, um, to 19 describe what he suffered, beginning in verses 13 to 15. It says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This was a brutal act of terror. These Sabaeans didn't just make one foray into Job's property and take some of the donkeys and some of the ax. They took everything. And as they took everything, they killed his servants. They were not only robbers, but murderers. And with one attack, they took 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, and killed all of his servants, save this one messenger, the bearer of bad tidings. Now, Job barely has time to process this and respond to this when another messenger arrives in verse 16. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. With the first tragedy, with the first loss, Job may have been able to say, that was an act of sinful man. But it is beyond question that this was an act of a holy God. It's the fire of God that fell from heaven and burned up all, how many sheep was it? 7,000 sheep burned them all up and consumed them. And the servants who no doubt tried to rescue them, they were consumed with them. As this fire from heaven spread and burned up all of Job's possessions in that part of his land. But then it gets worse. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Just like that, Job's remaining wealth was gone. Just like that, the greatest of all the people of the East, 
had become the poorest. 11,000 animals reduced to zero. A big fat zero in his bank account. I mean, many of you have lost income or you have lost investments because of this pandemic, but Job, Job lost everything. He lost 100% in one day, and it wasn't because of a risky venture. It wasn't because of foolish handling of his wealth, but because God had lifted the divine hedge of protection that had surrounded him. It sounds bad, but it gets worse. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came upon the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Can you imagine losing one child Can you imagine losing them all? Ten children dead. Not by the hands of the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans, but by the wind of God. Seven sons and three daughters whom he loved, whom he worried about, whom he interceded for continually, offering sacrifices to atone for their sins. It did not save them. They perished on the same day. No chance for Job to say goodbye. No chance for him to tell them one last time that he loves them. And not a single one left to help this man bear the burdens of his grief. All of them gone. All ten children buried under the roof of their oldest brother's house. The house of feasting, of laughter, of mirth, of celebration was silent. Had become the house of death. My friends, this was a dark day for Job. This was the darkest day he could have ever imagined. A man who had everything, had lost it all. And how would he respond? This leads to our final point Verse 20 says, then Job arose and tore his robe. Have you ever had a time when what you felt internally was so deep that it had to find external expression? You stomp off angrily, you throw something, you punch a wall. Well, Job, he tears off his clothes and he rips them apart. Then he shaves his head. He feels a need to change his appearance so that no one would look at his life and say, Job's okay. Everything's normal in his life. He wants everyone to know that his life has fallen apart, that his grief is great, that he is destitute and utterly hopeless. And then he falls on the ground. Why? To cry, to grieve, to to stay there, lie there, and not get up again? No. It says he falls on the ground to worship. To worship. To worship God. To acknowledge that he is holy, good, just, sovereign, praising him for his blessings, acknowledging his greatness and submitting 
to the divine, mysterious will of God. He worshiped. How was that possible? It was possible because of what Job believed in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My friends, in his moment of deepest grief and in your moments of deepest pain and suffering, it is your doctrine that will sustain you. It is what you believe about the nature and the character of God that will sustain you and help you and empower you so that when you fall on your face, you will not fall in despair. You will fall in worship. Job knew that everything that he had was a gift from God. He didn't have a right to it. He, he, he wasn't entitled to possess it. He didn't earn it. None of it ultimately belonged to him, but to the Lord. And if the Lord gave, then the Lord could take away God is the sovereign giver of every good and perfect gift and it is his prerogative to decide when those gifts should be removed. And that is not an easy truth to accept. That is not easy. And it could easily have been the case that Satan's prediction that if God stretched out his hand against Job and all his possessions, that he would curse God to his face, that could have easily been fulfilled. But instead, we see the opposite. Job blesses the name of the Lord. He doesn't curse God. He blesses God. He praises him for his goodness. He thanks God as the giver of every blessing that he had enjoyed and received. And he submits to God's loving and wise rule. What a remarkable moment! What an example to follow. Christopher Ashe writes, in the moment of his loss, his first thought is of the God who had first given. God had first given before he took away. Chapter one ends in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And that is noteworthy. That is remarkable because he could have easily sinned. He could have easily charged God with wrong. With the theology that he had, believing that this is God's doing, it's the Lord who has taken away. He doesn't have a a dualistic view of the cosmos where God and Satan are in this spiritual battle where sometimes God wins and sometimes Satan wins. He didn't believe that. He believed that God was behind everything, both his blessings and his suffering. He could have charged God with wrong, but he didn't. Instead, he fell back on what he believed about God, that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God has blessed. And this is because Job believed with all his heart that God was God, and he was not. He was just a man, He entered the world naked and with nothing, with no abilities, no gifts, no skills, no possessions. He emptied the world helpless and weak. And just as he entered the world, so he would exit the world. He would leave with nothing. 
And none of that changes the goodness of God or the blessings that God had given him because Job knows that it is better to have been blessed for a time than to never have been blessed at all. And even after those blessings have been stripped away from him, he can still praise God, worship him, bless the name of the Lord. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Job believed? Would you respond to suffering in your life in the same way that Job did? Perhaps you have suffered like Job. You followed the Lord. You've lived with integrity. Your desire has been to honor him both when you're around other people and when you're in the privacy of your own home and yet you have suffered. You have lost. You have experienced incredible hardship. Now you may be tempted to believe that God is punishing you for some unknown sin or that he's paying you back for the the sins of your youth or that he's tired and fed up with how you keep falling short of his standards. But Job, Job, he tells us a different story. He tells us that those who suffer most can actually be the ones whom God delights in most. We cannot measure God's favor by how much we suffer. We cannot let our circumstances dictate whether we believe that God loves us and cares for us because we don't know the whole story. Job didn't know the whole story. Job didn't know that God's word over him was that you are blameless and upright. I have no one like you in all the earth. And like Job, we do not know what is taking place in the heavenly councils. We don't know what Satan is plotting behind the scenes, but we do know something. We do know something that Job did not. We do know what God has said about us who are in Christ Jesus, who have put our faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord. We do know what he has said because he has told us in his word. Job did not have the scriptures. We do. And God's word tells us that we are forgiven. God's word tells us that our sins are washed away. God's word tells us that there is now no condemnation. Not not for all, but for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Christ has paid the full penalty for our sins. Christ suffered and died so that we could be saved from God's judgment, wrath, and punishment. Like Job, Jesus lost everything. But unlike Job, Jesus lost it by choice. He gave up his friends. He gave up his health. He gave up his life so that we could be free from God's wrath. We could be forgiven of our sins. Job suffered much, but his suffering did not redeem. Christ suffered more in order to save those who belong to him. If Job could lose everything and fall down on his face in worship, how much more should we? Job, he, he knew that he would go to the grave with nothing. But we who belong to Jesus know that we go to the grave with everything. We, we go not naked, but we go clothed with the very righteousness 
of Christ. Christ has, has made it possible for us to say that when we die, we gain. Loss is gain. It is better for us to be away from the body and at home with the Lord because Christ has paid it all. And he has won for us an eternal future of hope and joy in the presence of God. And so this is but the beginning of our journey through the book of Job. There are many more lessons to be learned in this book, but this is the first. That whatever you are going through, whatever suffering you are facing, whatever loss you are grieving, whatever burdens you are carrying, God will give you the strength and the grace to be able to say that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, some of us are going through a deep season of suffering, of grief, pain. We may not have suffered to the extent of Job, but sometimes it feels like it. Uh, I pray, Father, that these words in your word would give them comfort, would give them wisdom, would give them perseverance to worship, to not give up, but to hold fast to your holiness, to your goodness, to your sovereignty, and to your love. And I pray that as we continue to descend into the depths of this book, that you would help us all to suffer well, to suffer with faith, knowing that it is coming. It is coming for all of us. And may we be ready, like Job was, to fall on our face and worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.